When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Everybody. Welcome to the Beautiful Lane, the top hustler podcast from The Athletic. I'm your host, Danny Kelly. Alongside me today are The Athletic's Jack Pitbrook and Tim Spears, who are both in the stadium for the Sunday afternoon win against West Ham United, a game that we will discuss in full. We'll also get the latest on the reported takeover bid from MSP and Jam Najafi. But we'll start, if I may, by first of all saying a good hello to Jack. How are you? Good, good, thank you. Good. And Tim, how are you? Very well, thanks, Danny. All I can say about that is that you clearly have both survived the first half of that game. Definitely a game of two halves. And I never, I try not to say this about Spurs before the game, but in my deep heart, I honestly thought that was a must win. If they're to continue to harbour ambitions, to use a cliche, of a top four place, they had to win the game. But, Jack, that first 45 minutes, and I know it's a repeated pattern, I feel like a... Uh, we're, we're almost going Groundhog Day here. That was a that was a tough old watch against a West Ham a West Ham team that was for that forty five pure David Moyes. Well, I think I'd say three things. The first is that I'd say the first forty four minutes because at the very end of the first half, remember they Richarlison forced a corner and Romero headed one just over the bar, which was actually by the standards of that half really exciting. <laughs> uh, I did think I did think the up until that point the first half was utterly unwatchable I thought it was some of the worst football I've seen it, you know two back fives cancelling each other out to each team had two holders in front of the back five no confidence on display from either team no skill no imagination no creativity at all uh so yeah aw- awful really 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 bad fare but what I think Tottenham are learning is that football is so much easier if you don't go in at halftime 2-0 down like that's it seems like they finally cracked it, and the, you know whether it's the Fulham win, the City win, or this win. And I know Tottenham have had some bad results recently, and obviously Leicester was terrible. But in the in the games that they have won, it just gets a lot easier if you don't if you don't shoot yourself in both feet in the first forty five minutes. And once you do that, you have a platform in the game to improve on, and that's exactly what Tottenham did. Do do, do you share uh, Jack's uh, view there, Tim? Uh, you were there as well. Um, are you still uh, taking um, paracetamol to get over the first half? Me and Jack looked at each other after about 40 minutes. And oh, you were there holding hands? How lovely. I remember saying to him, how on earth are we are we going to get two articles to write out <laughs> of this? Obviously, you know, one of us is going to write it to the game and then one one for tomorrow. Um, what on earth you talk about, I don't know. Thankfully, it got much better in the second half. But yeah, it sort of felt like a mid-table game in April between two teams who had nothing to play for, like not one that's going for top four and not one that's supposed to be really disappointed with West Ham. Oh. In, in, in ter- just in terms of like their character and their fight. And, you know, they didn't didn't come across as a team 
fighting relegation. In fact, Rashane Thomas, our um, our colleague at the Athletic, who's, who reports on West Ham, said they're sort of sleepwalking towards relegation, which which is how it felt really watching them. I, um, I get the impression as one or two of their players, and look, this is not a West Ham podcast, who genuinely think they're too good to go down. And it, it may be that Leeds will do them an, a massive favour with their strange non-appointment of managers and things. Who does that remind you of, by the way? But they, they they are a weird team to watch now compared to last year when they were genuinely buoyant, weren't they? I mean, part of this, I guess, and we will get. Don't worry, everybody. We will get onto the joy of the way Spurs got, got themselves together in the second half. Part of this was, if not predictable, then perhaps predicated on the fact that um, West Ham obviously are set up by David Moyes to be hard to beat, at least in theory. Um, and Spurs, I saw the selection, and I was thinking of the players who are currently available. They could not. They can hardly have picked a more defensive lineup, unless they dropped one of the forwards and played Saar as a, as a third holding player. I mean that you know Romero, Dyer, Langley, a goalkeeper, a bigger goalkeeper than the one they normally have. Emerson, Skip, Hoiberg, and Davis across the midfield. I, I was really racking my brains to know that not only is that Jack the most defensive lineup Spurs could put out, but are they? And I'm thinking about Sean. Dice returns. Are they the most defensive team in the Premier League, at least on paper? Maybe. Yeah, it's uh, it would have been interesting if he'd gone for Saar instead. Let's say Saar instead of Kulusevski or Richarlison mm, gone exactly. to back nine. Yeah, but um, it's definitely the most defensive team Conte's ever played because it's. I mean, it's the first time he's played Ben Davis at, at left wing back. You know, you usually it's been what? Uh, well, initially Regulon, Sessegnon, Perisic in there, three more attacking players than than Davis. And then, of course, he's gone for the you know the more defensive option on the right. So it's basically five pure defenders plus two holders. So yeah, I mean, obviously, it did get a lot of lots of people weren't happy with it at the start. The first half seemed to confirm those fears that it was a, this was a team lacking in quality or ambition. But you know, we've got to we've got to say the how did the first goal count? It was Hoiberg to Ben Davis to Emerson Royale, and in, in a sense, it was really like a classic Conte goal. You know, the Conte's football is so dependent on the wing backs that really he wants both wing backs combining to score goals. You know, it reminded me a bit of remember when they went to Ellen Road and won last year. It was really at the start of that turnaround after the Burnley game and uh, you know the first goal I think was actually looked just like that it was Winks to Sessegnon to Doherty I think to put Spurs ahead so it's not impossible to score goals with those players and Davis and Royale are not you know Davis and Royale are good players it's just it's just, it's hard it's hard work when you've uh when you've got less le- less speed less creativity on the pitch it felt like a Man City away team selection to me you know not you know Danny said must win and it did feel like that it wasn't a must win sort of 11 and it was even more confusing because you know Davis and Real were so uh, advanced you know from minute one really I I, th- I thought they actually both both played really well you know even even before that goal I thought in the first half they were they were getting in good positions they were aggressive showing a lot of enthusiasm getting yeah getting in good areas and yet again it was sort of the ones around Kane who were the issue you know Richarlison didn't take his chance. Kulisewski had, had an awful first half. Uh, you know, full credit to him. He 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 kind of sparked sparked them to life in the second half. You know, w- winning the ball back a couple of times high up and setting up a couple of chances. But yeah, that that the first half he was just carrying on as he has done the last few weeks, sort of looking like he's injured or there's something wrong with him because he's you know so off the pace. But yeah, I think that they got lucky in a sense that that West Ham were so sort of anemic in their approach for much of the game because 10, 12, 
other teams in the Premier League probably would have scored the first goal and then we'd have had a, a repeat of what we've seen so many times this season. I mean, I, I'm, I know I have learned from uh, the people who make this podcast even before my much trumpeted arrival that the, the number one thing we need to do on this podcast is to prove that we were right with things we said. So I'm going to join in this now. But about 10 days ago, I think two podcasts ago, when I was putting forward the prospect that um, in the current circumstances, Davis might have to play left wing back particularly after Sessegnon's injury, and I got one or two raised eyebrows. Let's say it was James, just because he's not here. Let's say that for the sake of yes, argument. Yeah, yeah. But I, don't, I, I'm, I'm, I didn't really understand that. Ben Davis is a perfectly good player and a perfectly good technical player, and I think he has, he's not blessed with great speed. Let's, let's find, But, you know, I'm not surprised Davis was picked there, and I think you might see a lot more of that um, as the season unfolds. The problem for Ben Davis, I think, is, and this is, you know, I've been going to Spurs a little bit longer than either of you, is that, Players who are not glamorous often get a great deal of shade, as they used to say 10 years ago, and side-eye from Spurs supporters. No matter how established they are in the team, if they're, you know, I'm thinking thinking way back to people like John Pratt and people like that, who you have to have some water carriers in your team. Spurs fans, including myself, often think that, you you, you know, you you can have 10 people who are luxury players plus a goalkeeper and off we go. Antonio Conte, I suspect, does not share that view. And if Davis played very, very well, let's be honest here, he had a good game. Again, against a West Ham team that, with the exception of some of the fouls that Antonio decided to do when they were behind, just didn't show much much up for it, really. But he was outshone in the wing-back department by Emerson Royal. And of course, it is, to use the negative version of Spursy, it is totally Spursy. They spend the whole of January, Tim, shouting at a club in Portugal, can we have your right back? Can we have your right wing back? Can we have him? We'll offer you this, then we'll offer you that. They get him. Everyone's very excited. And the player who's supposed to replace suddenly hits fantastic form or very good form. I really thought Pedro Porro would would start this game. I I understood why Royale started sort of both games against City and, and he did a great job in both of those games. And, you know, you guys will know, better than me from having seen him for, for 18 months. But it feels like if if you ask Royale to sit and defend and mark his man and be disciplined, you know, he can do it. And he likes it as well. Ask, he likes it. You can tell. Yeah. It's when you ask him to do to do everything else, you know, and, and all the, the, the many the many different roles that 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 really important wing back job entails, you know, in terms in terms of attacking and getting up and down that flank as well as defending. That's when he sort of falls apart a little bit. But yesterday was the certainly the most complete performance I've I've seen from him, and it's such it's such an I mean I've written about this this morning. It's such an incredible underdog story, you know, from the fact that a month literally a month ago he was being booed onto the field. Which <laughs> that I, really I shocked you, didn't it? I, honestly, well, <laughs> I, I don't think I've seen I've seen that before. I mean, you know, Wolves fans don't need an excuse for a bit of a boo in bad times, and I've seen it many times over the years where players get booed off. Yeah. It's, and that's still quite rare for, for for your own fans to boo a player off. That's still quite rare in itself. But to boo them on, it's not just it's not just an assessment on what you've just done or the manager's decision. It's an assessment of you as a footballer. Like you're not good enough. We don't want you here. Get get out of that club. And I know it's only minority, but but it was still it was very it was very audible. So so literally a month later to go, you know, when he's running through on goal and he's got he's got his head down over the ball and finishes like a like a true number nine. It was a great moment, and you can really sort of feel the love for him in the stadium, which I really wasn't expecting. I've been on the same journey from thinking this lad just cannot play 
at a high enough level to sustain a Premier League or certainly a top half of the Premier League career to enjoying the fact that he hasn't changed as a footballer. Um, a bit of confidence, I suppose, helps. But I've enjoyed the fact that he's battled through it. And you're right, the finish, once he had the ball at his feet, I thought, oh, he's going to... And he didn't blast it. He just stroked it past Fabianski, who, let's be fair, is a pretty good goalkeeper. And it was a, it was a moment of great joy, wasn't it? It was one of the moments of the season, actually. I, I, thought, I thought, yeah, but it's fantastic. The best £40 million Tottenham ever spent is um, <laughs> buying Pedro Porro to unlock the potential of Emerson Royale. I thought his performances against Manchester City and uh, West Ham were the, the two best games he's ever played for Tottenham. I actually thought he was pretty pretty good against Milan as well. Uh, so in a difficult run, I think he's playing. He certainly played miles better than he ever has done before for Spurs. He's always been a really good defender. And I think he's, he's he is slowly but surely adding a little bit of confidence in the final third, like he's never going to be, he's never going to be, you know, consistently destructive in the final third. I don't think, but he's getting better. He's, I think he, he he's much better for having Kulusevski there because Kulusevski likes to play so wide that there's actually, you know, there's that space inside that kind of, um, you know, that sort of inside right channel. What people on Twitter call a half space, Danny, in which Royale can push forward, and you know, he he's getting better and better and better at it. I'm actually quite enjoying watching him play, and we got a no look pass as well. Uh, that was when I thought, hang Soon on. After, he was so inspired by the goal that he thought he would, uh, he would try out a no-look pass. Compared to earlier in the season when he was trying out his no-skill pass, yeah? yeah. And what I like about the, the no-look pass is that people think that it kind of gives people the, a mistaken impression of Royale and thinking that he is a flair player, but he's not really a flair player at no. all. He's actually a very organised, fit, disciplined, defensive fullback, really. But... Someone who also likes to no look past from time to time, which is uh, it's kind of incongruous with his overall approach to the game. Uh, but yeah, I, I I like watching him play. I know he's he's not the best, but I like him. To return to a theme from this podcast, then I make no, no no apology for that. You know, this is what we're here for. I think his performance was also aided, quite apart from West Ham's slightly inert performance. It was aided by the fact that Christian Romero had a very good game without setting everybody else teeth jangling. By, by by going mad halfway through the game, he was he was he was a very a very stable influence, Tim. He was, yeah, impeccable timing with all with all of his tackles, which was um, which was great to see because it was it was getting farcical to be honest. I think it was nine bookings in ten games for club and country since the World Cup, and it was six in five, I think, including the two for his red card. It was ju- it was just getting daft to be honest. So I, I wouldn't say necessarily reined it in because you know some of the some of the tackles were right on the line, but um, but yeah, no, it was a really good performance from him and. You're right about helping out Royale. Stellini poured cold water on this notion after the game, but it was put to him that Porro's arrival has um, has given Emerson Royale, you know, a, a boost. And you've got to say that that Man City away game in mid-January was just as they were they were looking like they're on the verge of signing uh, Porro. And ever since then, his forms have been great. You've got to say that Doherty leaving would have instead of him would have given him a confidence boost. But I think he, he's clearly someone who works really hard at his game. One thing that, that um, James noticed actually during the game yesterday was that he's actually crossing less. So I, I did I did put the uh, the numbers test to James's eye test, and that that is true, which is a good thing, Danny and Jack, because he's only of his fifty seven crosses in all competitions this season, he's only found a teammate with five of them, according to FB Ref. So that's an astonishingly low percentage. Well, for that, a but that's that that's the thing that was getting him booed: the fact that that particular skill. 
crossing the football, he was proving to be very poor. And again, I, I didn't have um, those numbers to hand, but the evidence of your own eyes watching him. In fact, uh, there were times yesterday where it looked like Kulusevsky was holding his coat, wasn't he? I'll show you how to cross the ball far beyond Harry Kane. I, I know how to do that. And he did it. There was one where Kane was caught. And again, I was watching the game on television, so it was easier to catch this. The ball went sailing over Kane's head from a Kulusevsky cross, and he had to... He did that human thing where you turn to have a go, then realise it's Kulusevsky who's normally very good at it, and so you had to do the oh, unlucky make through gritted teeth, and there was a bit of that about it. So well done, Emerson, Emerson Royale. I mean, and you're right, it was a lost in all of that first goal, a critical first goal as it is, Hoiberg's pass through to Davis as well, which um, for when we talk about a team that lacks creativity, to see that pass and then to, to get it into his pathway... Very, very good indeed. The second goal was a trip down memory lane, an important thing for one of our more important players. It was all kinds of things. Let's talk about why Son came on. And I felt very sorry for Richarlison. I wanted him to start. He's He wants to be all action. He wants to be involved. He wants to be chaotic, all the rest of it. But we do know that there is match sharpness in professional football. And he looked he looked off that, didn't he? Yeah, he did look a bit rusty, which is understandable given how little football he's played for Tottenham recently. I mean, for what it's worth, I thought that Spurs' best move of the first half, which is obviously a very, very, very low bar, came at, right at the end when they forced that corner where Richarlison ran in behind, Kane dropped really deep, Kane played a brilliant pass over the top for Richarlison to, to, to run on to. And I think given the way that that was always the way he was going to be most influential in the game, really, was play almost like in, in that kind of Son-type role you know, uh, as a nine, running in behind onto Kane's, onto Kane's passes. But, it, you know, the, the space wasn't there for them, him. It's very difficult going up against a back five, particularly in the first half. You know, Son took his goal really well, but the game was easier for Son when Son came on because West Ham were tired. They were already 1-0 down by that point. So, yeah, I do have I do have sympathy for Charles. And he looked, he looked really pissed off when he got taken off. Not, not angry at the decision, but just disappointed himself because this is only... I think the third time this season he's played in that position out on the left or f- from the start for Tottenham. He obviously was desperate to make an impression. It's been a difficult time for him and he didn't really make as much of an impression as he would have wanted to. So I, I feel for him and I just hope that this is not the end of, you know, Richarlison starting because I do think Richarlison starting over Son is a good idea. It's something that Tottenham should do more often, particularly given how many games they've got coming up. If at half time you were asked who's coming off for Son. It was a toss-up between himself and Kulisewski. And Richarlison must have known um, that when we saw Son warming up, that it's likely to be him because by that stage, Kulisewski has started to influence the game more in the second half. And unless there was a fitness issue, it was always going to be that. Which brings on Son. And then we get, you know, what we, we got what we got. The Harry Kane knows where his mate's going to be. His mate, as you say, the game is slightly stretched. West Ham have got to push forward a little bit. Oh, and I meant to say here as well, for a person who got pelters the other day, we have to be equally keen to tell the truth. That save by Fraser Forster immediately after Spurs scored, very important in the game. And it was a ball down low where we were saying that, you know, it takes him a fortnight to get planning permission to go down from the local council. Very good save. Well done him. Not not world class. Nothing to he won't be having a plaque made you know outside his house to say this is where I made the save. The, the fact of the matter was though, that it was an important save, particularly in the context of the game. On comes Son, and he scores. I just want to say 
Son's career at Spurs has all, virtually all, been in the shadow of Harry Kane. And he is starting now, as just as Kane had done six, seven weeks ago, he's starting to rack up all kinds of new landmarks. That goal took him beyond Teddy Sheringham as the second biggest Premier League goalscorer in Spurs history. Now, the Premier League's only whatever it is, 30 years old. But the fact of the matter is that Son has now scored more than Teddy Sheringham and he is heading his, what, he's two away from 100 Premier League goals, which is impressive. Secondly, in the course of this terrible season for him, in Spurs' all-time goal-scoring records, he has passed the legendary Alan Gilzean, two names perhaps from the, the, the mists of history, Len Dukemin and George Hunt, and he's closing in now. He will get three more goals, presumably, before the end of the season, and he'll go past Jermaine Defoe. And then, then... You've just got the club's legends ahead of you. Cliff Jones, Martin Chivers, Bobby Smith, Jimmy Greaves and Harry Kane. We are astonishingly lucky, those of us who follow Spurs, to have had two of the greatest goal scorers in the club's history playing together year after year after year. We are blessed. But all, of course, Son's, Son's stats always get completely obliterated and ignored because of you know he's in, in that giant shadow of Kane. I think that for someone who has really struggled this season for form and confidence and and all the rest of it, his touch for the first goal was amazing. It was like watching the son of, you know, 2017 to 2022. Uh, It was as if this season hadn't happened. And it felt like such a kind of uh, sort of flashback, throwback moment, the way he took the ball and finished it, running onto that pass through from Kane. It almost made you think, like, if only if he'd been doing that all season, then Tottenham could be top. <laughs> no, I'm, jo- I'm joking uh, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean, like it was just, uh, it, it was not the song that we've seen this season at all, and all the better for it. No, and his agonies as a player, I have often, I thought, reflected Spurs' agonies as a team. You know, there's something in there waiting to get unleashed, but the gears are grinding, the doves are not quite tailing, whatever the carpentry talk would be, and he, you know, it is something of a miracle to me, Tim, to see that that result has put them fourth in the Premier League. You've, you've watched them closely all this season. Given how much negative stuff we've had to report on and the negativity of the team at times, it's astonishing they're still in, in fourth place. I don't feel like I'm watching the fourth best team in the country, Danny. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It really doesn't feel that way. But yeah, they're in, they're in a great position. They're, they have the opportunity to take advantage of, of Chelsea and Liverpool's, you know, bumbling seasons. Although Liverpool will be the one for me that I'd be, that I'd be worried Liverpool about. Liverpool are now favourites for the bookies to finish fourth. What it's worth. Yeah, and they're the ones that obviously we all know are, are capable of going on a on a prolonged winning run, not just unbeaten. Newcastle faltering a little bit. Obviously, got the Carabao Cup distraction, a few injuries, and possibly you know leveling out to the, to to where we sort of expect them to be at. So yeah, the the opportunities is is somehow there, despite the fact that I still feel like a crisis is never more than you know a couple of days. Never away. more than Leicester away. And, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and the you know the the, the injury problems they've had, but. You look at that bench yesterday, Perisic, Son, Dan Juma, Porro. Uh, Lucas Moura. <laughs> Lucas Moura was back. Saar, who, you know, starred in Milan a few days ago. So it's, it's it's a really strong bench. And this is something that Conte has spoken about before, you know, not not fixating on just having an 11 or, or 13 players, as he always calls it, that he had at the end of last season. And the Richarlison Son thing is, is, is a key part of that, really. You know, I wouldn't be rushing to bring Son back into the team next week just because he's... He scored. You know, we have seen this 
before where he's he's looked like his old self and and taken a decent goal in the second half and then you think you know that's that's it for him he's back to himself and then he's become sort of an empty shirt again the next week you know we've seen that far too often and you know you mentioned about rhythm for Richarlison earlier he's only played just short of 500 minutes in the Premier League this season so although it's 14 appearances and no goals it's it's only sort of five full games, but they've been all over the place in terms of in terms of starts and sub appearances. You know, he need he needs that rhythm now. I'd I'd definitely be starting him against Chelsea next week because you've got to look at the squad game here. You know, Spurs are still somehow fighting on on three fronts, and um, it's not just about picking the same eleven players every week. Absolutely not. I mean, uh, the obviously the Chelsea game, which is traditionally very 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 difficult for Spurs, is bearing down on us, and then. With all due respect, because we saw what happened against Leicester, Spurs can lose to any team in, in this league. I'm right thinking there comes a moment late March or early April where they play Manchester United, Liverpool and Newcastle in very quick succession. We've got the, there's a kind of... If the league table looks like it does now, come then, Spurs have got an amazingly frightening-looking little, little bit of, of run. They've got some... They've got some winnable fixtures. I'm not saying they're going to win them, but they've got some winnable fixtures. And then they've got a brute of a... of a Not quite the running, but just before the running. So after, after the March International break, in the league, it goes Everton away, Brighton at home, Bournemouth at home. Then it gets harder. Newcastle away, Man United at home. This is late April now. Liverpool away. And then in May, it's slightly gentler. Palace, Villa, Brentford, Leeds. So the, yeah, that, there's a that there's a crux there, Newcastle. isn't there? Essentially, a Champions League quarterfinal around that time of the Newcastle. Probably go games, very right? very difficult away quarterfinal the FA Cup or semi final the FA Cup as exactly, well. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> this this if if they if they get through second leg against Milan and probably give them let's say a 50-50 chance, Champions League quarterfinal second leg is eighteenth nineteenth of April, so four days before Newcastle Spurs Liverpool, all of which are in the space of a week. So in theory, they could be going Champions League quarterfinal. On Tuesday or Wednesday, Newcastle Saturday, Man United Tuesday, Liverpool Saturday. And then straight out of that into the Champions League, well, one week off and then Champions League semi-final in early May. And we haven't even spoken about the FA Cup semi-finals here as well, Danny. If they are, actually, it's worth saying, if they are in the FA Cup semi-finals, so for which they would have to beat what, uh, they'd have to beat Sheffield United away and then win the quarter-final on the weekend of the 19th of March, just before the international break... Then the Cup semi-finals of the weekend of uh, 22nd, 23rd of April, which means that the Newcastle away game, which is going to be like the definitive game of the season, perhaps, in the way that Arsenal at home was last season, that would then be punted into some, uh, you know, a midweek in April. So, yeah, it's uh, all to play for. A couple more points from the game, if I may. Lucas Moura came on. The long-lost Lucas Moura. Is he ahead of Dan Juba then suddenly, Tim, in the, in the pecking order? I don't think we really know where where Dan Juma's sort of well where their ideal position for Dan Juma is. To be honest, I mean, cutting him from the left is where he had such success earlier in his career. So yeah, I guess the the right hand side is potentially where you'd see him getting a few minutes, but uh, but not yesterday. Um, it was nice to see Lucas Moore. I, I, to be honest, I didn't think we'd see him again this season or or therefore in a Spurs shirt again. But yeah, he uh, I, I didn't notice a huge amount of what he did, but it was it's it's apart from a couple of runs, um, obviously very light on in the game. But yeah, you talk about that. Jack talks about that run there. They're going to need all the bodies they can get really, and if if you can have a sort of a, a full bench of options, which is what they're slowly sort of heading towards now, and if Basuma's back in. in in, in a couple of months, you know, that'll just add to that. So, yeah, good to have options. But I, I don't really see 
where Dan Schumer fits in at the moment. I, I, and I can't really predict when we'll next sort of see him, to be honest, especially with um, with Son coming on to score. He's obviously ahead of him as well. Yeah, but obviously with that run of fixtures and the kind of, I mean, the, never mind the actual names of the teams. There's so many games that Spurs might be involved in between now and the end of the season. As you both said, they will need all, all hands on deck. Of course, I can't ever see Lucas Moura running on without seeing him in that sort of jade kit uh, from the Amsterdam Arena. Just to mention that purely because uh, Fernando Lorente has this week announced his retirement from professional football. And, you know, no one will ever claim that he was fantastic for Spurs, but there were a couple of moments, weren't there? The disputed goal against Manchester City in the quarterfinal of the Champions League. And, of course, his critical getting of the ball down for that in the last minute in Amsterdam, they'll never leave my mind. You know, it's it, he's a big man. It's a great skill. He got the ball into the one place where Deli Ali could get it in, and he got it into the one place where Lucas could get it to it, and he put it in the one place that would see the Ajax players lying on the pitch in tears. Fantastic. Well done, Fernando. I want to get your view on something uh, perhaps outside the normal remit of this podcast, and that is the dreaded VAR. Why wasn't that penalty when the bloke scooped the ball up? Anybody want to help me? I don't understand. I haven't seen any TV coverage from yesterday, so I don't know what the explanation given was. But he's not in a natural position. Uh, he's sort of, I guess, fallen to the floor, but doesn't actually fall to the floor. No. He just sort of scoops the ball up. So I, I, I honestly, I can't understand. I mean, you know, James tweeted, that's a handball in in any era. And, and I completely agree, to be honest. I, I, I literally can't think of any, of any defense for why that was. I mean, well, in many ways, it was worse than, maybe maybe it's just that the handball laws don't apply to West Ham anymore. In some ways, it was worse than the Suchek one the previous week because Suchek was at least on the ground and was, you know, this thing of supporting your skeleton um, with, with one arm. But this fellow was, he didn't even go down. He just batted the ball away. It, very, very odd indeed. I, don't, I, I also don't understand why it wasn't a, why it wasn't a handball. I just don't know. And see, I kind of rely on you for a, a you know, a, an elegantly expressed contrary opinion. But there you are. There's none. There's nothing. That should have been a penalty. The other thing I said, this Stellini thing is getting weird now. I mean, that's that's three games he's sort of taken charge of, although Conte was was very much involved in this, you know, according to what Stellini said afterwards. Three games, three wins. And so, someone in the press conference yesterday mentioned that when Conte was banned or bannered, as, as I love the way he's, he's, he, he describes it himself, uh, bannered from three games... Uh, as inter manager, Stellini came in and won all of those as well. So he's got a six match, one hundred percent record of, t- of taking charge of a Conte team in the past uh, sort of two three years, which is remarkable, really. But yeah, it seemed like for the Man City win a couple of weeks ago, Conte was very much sort of bed bound and not really involved in that at all. But yesterday he was on the phone making decisions, and um, also interesting to note that he's almost very unlikely to be back for the Chelsea game, which will hurt Conte I'm sure but Stellini said you know on doctor's orders not expecting him to be back for Chelsea on a personal level I just I wish he would just let himself get well I don't really want to hear about him watching the game um, and sending messages and all the rest of it you know let yourself get better it's obvious and I did I made, made exactly the same mistake 18 months ago I had an operation on my kidney and I was back doing podcasts and things you know within about 10 days and I remember coming off air after one of those and thinking, you're an idiot. You are absolutely drained here. And, you know, great. He wants to show his commitment. But let, let surely Stellini and, and Brian Mason have got enough about them to run the team for a couple of weeks without, without being sort of doing it by drone from Italy. Yeah, I agree. I also think it's interesting that we've seen, in the absence of Conte, a bit more of a sense of 
kind of collective responsibility at Tottenham. So this is something Stellini's talked about before, about how, you know, if it's uh, if Conte's in charge, then Conte makes all the decisions and everyone else just has to accept it. Whereas without him, it becomes more, much more of a team effort from the coaches. I think oh, that, that I believe that's also true of the players. You know, I spoke to Ben Davis after the game and he was talking about how Stellini told the senior players that they've all got to take responsibility and do their bit. And so over the course of last week, I know there were, you know, there were big meetings at Spurs amongst the senior players in response to the Leicester game and how do we ensure this doesn't happen again. I know we talked, I think I said last week on the podcast, this idea of players taking responsibility is a bit of a fantasy really in football because the manager takes responsibility. But we're in this unique situation at Spurs at the moment, which is that a club which, you know, like most big clubs, is basically a kind of mini autocracy. If you take the autocrat out of the picture, there's a power vacuum. And that something has to fill that vacuum, and I think that 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 the only way you can do that is with some degree of of collective response, and that's what we've seen from both the coaches and the players. I know that they were awful against Leicester. We can't forget that, but I do think against both, certainly against City, and in this game, we did we saw a genuine collective response from the players. We saw collective decision making from the coaches. And it just feels like you know they the players have stepped up in a way which you know, which isn't always the case in difficult circumstances. So it's it's going to be really interesting to see if, you know, when Conte does return, will this kind of spirit of collective endeavour survive or will it go back to the old sort of decision-making processes? Yeah, they've looked slightly freer, haven't they, without him on the side of the pitch. Let's be absolutely, and, you know, free to play terribly against Leicester, but freer um, than when he hit the, his baleful glare um, is crossing the sward. A final little thought um, about the game. Instagram, uh, where I think Jack is more active than I. Destiny Adoji, who's now owned by Spurs, was at the game. He posted about it on his, on his Instagram. He posted to show he was in the uh, he was in the stands for the game yesterday. Friday night he played in the in Serie A. I watched him play. The team was Udinese uh, doing okay. They were in the top half of the table. They played as a three and a four at the back at various times, and he played. And I watched him very closely. Man, um, I don't know what Antonio's going to make of this when if he ever gets hold of him, because he takes off. He's the most, he's very, very, very attacking from the left defensive quadrant, but his destination is not the corner flag like so many uh, fullbacks. His destination is the penalty spot. The number of times he ended up as the furthest player forward in Udinese's system was extraordinary, and a heat map would show him goal hanging at times. If he and Pedro Porro ever get into into harness together at Spurs. The defensive midfielders are going to have their work cut out covering the spaces. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Here's Song. He's in. And. 
and Tottenham in front. Brilliant from Kane, absolutely fantastic. The touch is wonderful. You're welcome back to the second half of today's View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly, alongside me are Jack Pitbrook and Tim Spears. And that was just a little flavour following the second goal against West Ham, yet again of the combination between Harry Kane and Son. This time, of course, you'll remember that from the lockdown, the depths of the lockdown, actually, in a 6-1, but yep, 6-1 win at Old Trafford. Not a kind of result I'd be expecting uh, these days, but this was the days of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And, of course, it also... That was days when we uh, when he, this, the scoring was opened from inside the six-yard box by Tangay and Dombele. Back to really important business. The newspapers are and websites are full of the prospect of investment from some outside source or a complete bid for Tottenham Hotspur. Jam and Najafi, MSP. The Financial Times reported that the Iranian-American billionaire was set to launch a bid for Spurs. He's said to be a leading a consortium who were weeks away from making a formal approach to the club. Overall, the, the bid was thought to be worth £3.1 billion, pounds, roughly you know, $3.5 billion. And Tottenham insisted there have been no reproach. Jack, have you got much background either on Najafi or, or this bid? Because it's very public, um, yet we know so little about it. The first thing to say is that Tottenham have said they have not received an approach yet. I was really interested to read the story. I think it's a really it's a really good story. To be honest, I would be really surprised if this happened uh, for a few reasons. The first is that I think you know while I don't I don't disagree with the reporting, I think that it's always worth treating these you know when someone's putting a consortium together as Najafi seems to be doing. It's always worth treating it with a bit of skepticism about the who's going to be part of the consortium so the, it says in the story that i think 30 percent of the money would come from the gulf we know that Najafi and his group have been looking at a minority stake in everton which is obviously a completely different prospect from a full purchase of tottenham hotspur the second more important thing to say is that i just don't think that the numbers are enough so this this story it mentions basically 3.1 billion pounds would be the total value of the bid so that would be roughly two and a half billion for the equity in the club plus the debt on top. I just don't think that's what Enoch would want for Tottenham at all, really. I mean, if you look, think of it like this, like generally, the way that you know clubs are often valued in relation to their revenue. And if 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 Tottenham would... So, and, you know, we saw from Tottenham's financial results the other week that in the 2021-22 season, they, had, they recorded a revenue of £444 million pounds so 3.1 billion which is the total figure in in the ft story that's seven times the revenue but having spoken to quite a lot of people who know more about this than i do last week my impression is that enic are likelier to want at least they're likely to value tottenham at at least eight times the club's revenue that would be three and a half billion more likely nine times the club's revenue that would be four billion or even ten times the club's revenue which would be 4.4 billion in the times when I was doing business, and I was doing business with people who have much better head for these things than me, it was during the shuffle in the internet, the start of the internet, when people were launching things, and we were, we were buying businesses all the time. Not at this scale, but a very wise man once said to me, you can talk about debt, you can talk about this, you can talk about that, you can talk about the fixed assets, you can talk about the buildings. In the end, every business is worth 11 times its revenue. That is, in, in most business people, they go to school to learn this stuff. Everything else is sl- slightly fluid. 
And so the figure is four and a half billion. I mean, it's it's actually very simple. And so that that bid is way short of of what they would want. Well, I was I was going to say what I'd point out, you know, from from those revenue figures is that um, that's from a season which didn't have any Champions League football for a start. Uh, the fact there was barely any European football that season. It was the, it was the conference season where they had two or three poorly attended home games. So if you if you took in you know three or four or five uh, Champions League home games and a Champions League run, you know, we know that the money Spurs made when, when they went to the final. Um, three nights of Beyonce. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, more concerts. You know, they, they haven't sorted out um, stadium uh, naming rights yet either. That there's a lot more potential for a lot more money to come in. I expect those revenue streams to increase um, by a pretty decent percentage in the next couple of years. You know, just just judging on the numbers that we've seen so far. So, yeah, it does feel like the numbers quoted are, are, are as you both said, nowhere near enough. I expect Tottenham's revenues for this season to probably be in in the broad region of five hundred million pounds, which would be their highest ever figure given that Champions League run, given the the full season at the stadium and the concerts and, and all the rest of it. Now, you don't need to be very good at maths to know that ten times five hundred million pounds is five billion pounds. Now I'm not saying that five billion pounds is the asking price, but I think that it would it's it's definitely not going to start with a three. You know, it's much more likely to to start with a four and maybe even be at the at the top end of that. So I just can't the idea of Daniel Levy selling Tottenham for three point one billion just doesn't really sound right to me at all. Which always brings me back to above Daniel's head there is Joe Lewis, who is a man of advancing years. one doesn't want to be unkind. I always wonder what the, we never hear from him, of course. He's an absolutely silent owner. What does he want? Has anybody ever sat down of your colleagues and had an interview with, with, with Joe Lewis? Not me, no. And, I, don't, and I, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't think of any journalists I know who've met him. I think the key point here is it's not only what does Joe Lewis want, it's also what, what does his daughter Vivian Lewis want? So Vivian Lewis has been very involved in Tottenham over the years. She speaks to staff at the club all the time. She has, you know, she you've she's been seen at games recently, uh, sat alongside Daniel Levy. Um, she's a good personal friend of the Kane family. I, I wrote a piece about Vivian Lewis, I think it was uh, maybe at some point in 2022, if listeners are interested in who she is. The expectation is that Vivian Lewis will, you know, is, is already involved with Tottenham and will continue to be involved with Tottenham. So it's whether Joe Lewis is motivated by selling his shares, because obviously he doesn't own, you know, Enoch doesn't own all of the club and Joe Lewis doesn't own all of Enoch. Whether Joe Lewis would want to sell his stake, I don't know. I just, I, I just couldn't speculate about that. About what he personally wants. Listen, both of you. Thank you for joining us here on the View from the Lane. Can I point you in the direction of Tim's piece on the redemption of Emerson Royal on the Athletic site and Jack's match report because they did manage, despite the uh, the uh, barren wastelands of the first half, to find two pieces, very good pieces they are as well, um, about Spurs. And of course. They're all part of a massive amount of Spurs material that appears in The Athletic every time. So if you're not already an Athletic subscriber, you need to sign up now to read all of that Spurs cover, as well as everything else that's on the site. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Sign up right now for $1.99 a month for the first 12 months. That is theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Thank you all for listening. Some combination of us will be back on Thursday. Have a great week. The Athletic.